Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? Is it a tank? Tesla unveils its electric truck. Trade deal latest. Skinny deal chances looking skinnier and just not ready to let it go. Disney's Frozen 2 hits the box office. It's Friday. Let's make a move. first move after three days of U.S. impeachment hearings. I tell you what, one thing that looks pretty unimpeachable at this moment is U.S. stocks. We are trading right around record highs at this moment, despite some conflicting reports on trade. Yes, I know you've heard it all before, but President Xi of China reiterating overnight that China would like a deal, but isn't afraid to, quote, fight back. His vice premier, Liu He, has invited U.S. trade officials to China for fresh talks. Investors, I think, hanging on to that and hopes of a deal, despite the fact that uh, President Trump has cautioned, though he did say a few minutes ago, that a deal could be closed too. So news all over the place. We have three weeks to go before fresh U.S. tariffs kick in on $160 billion worth of Chinese exports. So what was I saying? I was saying that the S&P 500 is around half a percent away from fresh record highs. Yet on the week, we could actually see a pullback for the first time since October. What about what's going on in Europe too? Stocks holding in the green, but fresh numbers show Eurozone manufacturing still contracting in November, but by less than last month. Services activity grew modestly, though. Step forward, uh, fresh ECB head Christine Lagarde making her first formal plea to European governments to boost fiscal stimulus, calling this Europe's moment of opportunity. I have to say they've skipped plenty of those over the past few years, but still, what about Asian stocks? Well, mixed. China closing out the week a touch softer, but still up 15% year-to-date. Japan up 15% too. Records may not have been shattered overnight, but some windows definitely were. Let's get to the drivers on this story because we begin with a smashing presentation from Tesla, the launch of its electric SUV. Shares, though, down some 4% pre-market. Claire Sebastian joins us on this story. Fascinating. I mean, first we can talk about what it actually looks like. As I described at the top, it's tough to get a sense of what this vehicle actually is, Claire. But then, of course, they said it was bulletproof and mm -mm, doesn't look like it is. Talk us through the details. Yeah, Julia, it's, it's probably a marriage, you could say, of Tesla and SpaceX. Was that inevitable uh, in, in the mind and the vision of Elon Musk? Uh, that, that is perhaps true. But, uh, but is it going to be a marriage that lasts? I think that's the big question. This does not look like your traditional pickup. It was unveiled in California to great fanfare. They carried out a live test where they smashed it with a sledgehammer. It's supposed to be made from the same uh, alloy that they used to make rockets uh, at, at SpaceX. And it survived the sledgehammer, but a little less 
successful when they tried testing the supposedly shatterproof windows. Take a look. Well, maybe that was a little too hard. <laughs> well, uh, Musk did, of course, point out, Julia, that the, the metal ball didn't go through. So, so if you were in the car, you probably would have been fine. But he had other big promises. He says this car can pull more than a Ford F-150, which is the top-selling pickup in its class. He says it has the performance uh, of a sports car. The car kind of slides the ramps, the, 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 the back uh, edge of it slides back to reveal the bed. It has a built-in ramp, all kinds of other features like storage. I think the big question here is, will it be able to lure pickup drivers away from the brands they currently love? There's a lot of loyalty in that class. And I think analysts are questioning that if you look at the, the stock today. Yeah, I mean, we have to look at the look of this thing, the cost of this thing, the performance, to your point. Uh, better sports car than a Porsche 911, better hauling capacity than a Ford F-150. Even GM CEO, though, Mary Barra said they're going to bring their own version, an electric version to market, I believe, in, uh, in 2021. Production on this not expected to even begin for Tesla until the back end, I believe, of, of, of 2021. The competition in this space is fierce. And when I look at this thing, I imagine a contractor. Is he going to turn up to work in one of these? It's, it's sort of hard to imagine, uh, Julia. But I think if you look at the price tag, it starts at $39,900. They are trying to target the mass market here. It's not like Rivian, which is a, a startup backed by Amazon and Ford, which is launching its own brand of electric truck that, that, that starts at $69,000. So that's really um, kind of marketed as a luxury uh, a niche product. This, this seems to be trying to target the mass market. But there's a lot of skepticism out there, not just because of, uh, of the competition. As you mentioned, uh, GM is promising uh, to start production on their first electric truck uh, at the end of 2021. Uh, actually, they're promising to bring it to market. That's the point at which uh, Tesla is only going to start production, they say, uh, on the Cybertruck. But also uh, because, you know, this is, the, this, as I said, is, is the, the most lucrative area of the car market in the U.S. The top three selling cars so far this year, according to Kelly Blue Book, uh, are the Ford F-Series, the, the Ram truck and the Chevy Silverado. They, they are going to struggle in this class, especially when the car, the car looks so futuristic, Julia. Yeah, yeah, to say the least. Yeah, I'm not sure about this. I, Tesla enthusiasts will be all over this. I'm just, uh, I'm just not sure about anyone else. Anyway, there's time. There's time to uh, think about this one, I think, perhaps. Right. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, next driver, the White House toying, apparently, with two scenarios to break the U.S. trade deal deadlock. A source telling CNN, Christine Romans has all the details. Yeah. What are the options here, Christine? Well, the options get slimmer and slimmer here, uh, quite literally. First, option number one, a person familiar with the talks tells me, or the state of play tells me, uh, option number one is the president stays tough on China and implements new tariffs in December and keeps all the old tariffs on. And part of the thinking behind this, and the president is well aware, that stock markets are up beautifully this year and are still up from the very beginning when tariffs began. And the president well aware that each new round of tariffs has been absorbed by the sentiment on Wall Street. So there's this idea that the U.S. economy is strong enough, the stock market is strong enough, quite frankly, there you see the markets since the beginning of the trade war, that the president could stand tough. There are others who say, look, the president might be able to spin that and sell that to his electorate going into next year, saying, look, there's a lot of pressure from Wall Street, a lot of pressure from the globalists to try to do some kind of a skinny, meaningless deal with the Chinese, but no President Trump stood his ground. And that politically, some are thinking might be good for him. Now, 
look, that next round of tariffs in December, there are economists who say, you know, with, with sub 2% GDP growth in this country, a big round of tariffs that would be felt by the consumer would be a real risk to take. Uh, the second option here is what this source told me is not a skinny deal anymore, is an anorexic deal, a deal that benefits Wall Street by allowing some access, market access into uh, into the Chinese financial markets by, by Wall Street and maybe some soybean purchases in exchange for dropping the September tariffs, ending the December tariffs, and that's what China wants. So the way the source set it up, it's almost this, uh, the Chinese, the globalists, and Wall Street bankers on one side, and American workers and the president on the other side trying to try to find out what's the middle ground. Where do the agricultural purchases come in on the increasingly skinny, skinny deal version? They're in because there. If we're they... talking, yeah, Christine, go they... for it. Yeah, they're in there. Um, but one thing that the Chinese have balked at is a specific number. You know, the president has said that the Chinese agreed to 40 or 50 billion dollars a year annual uh, sales. And the Chinese didn't want to be locked in, we're told, to a specific number. So what could happen here is the Chinese either agree to a number or, or continue. They have been making some soybeans purchases as, a, as an act of goodwill. Uh, there's some kind of, of nuance between there where the Chinese uh, make some promises on soybean purchases, but not necessarily a specific number. Uh, you know, the, the fascinating thing about this to me, Julia, this is not the course correction the president set out for in the beginning, which is why some people think that he might end up, if you listen to him in Austin, Texas this week, he, he sounded irritated um, that the Chinese have been stepping back. They reneged in May. Um, if, if they do only a tiny, tiny skinny deal or only agree to very slim soybean purchases, you know, could that really irritate the president and the tariff man comes back? I will say anything could happen here. Honestly, anything could happen. But the time is running out. You're so right to point out we have three weeks until that December deadline for more uh, for more tariffs. And in the meantime, we're uh, what half a percent off record highs and investors live in hope. Yes, they do. It'll be an interesting do. few weeks. We're yep, Thank you for that. All right, next driver, Microsoft getting the go-ahead to export software to China's Huawei after the Commerce Department announced plans to grant licenses. Haddis Gold is in London for us. Give us a sense here, Haddis, and great to have you with us, what Microsoft is now allowed to do and whether we've got any information about Google, about whether mm, Alphabet yes. will also be able to provide services, because this is the real kicker for Huawei if they're selling phones that don't have apps provided by Google here, surely. Yeah, Julie, it's been a good week for Huawei, honestly. Earlier this week, they got an extension to that exemption as part of the blacklist. And now they're starting to get the news that these licenses are being extended to certain companies. We know that about 300 license requests have gone to the Commerce Department. We don't know exactly how many have been granted. But a big one, of course, is Microsoft that said that the company received a license to export mass market software to Huawei. So that's likely the Windows operating system. Uh, but one thing that we have not heard from, as you noted, is Google and whether or not Huawei can can have those Google apps on their phones. Remember that they had to pull their license from Huawei. This is a big issue for Huawei outside of China because can you sell smartphones to consumers, for example, here in Europe without having those key apps like Google Maps or Google Mail on your phone? I actually spoke earlier this week with Huawei Senior Vice President for Global Affairs, Victor Zhang, who spoke about how they think they're being treated by the U.S. They still think they're being treated unfairly and whether they can move on without potentially having Google on their phones. Take a listen. Extension for the general, uh, temporary general license uh, to Huawei uh, will not impact on Huawei's business either. This decision uh, made by the 
U.S. Department of Commerce does not have the change of Huawei situation be treated continually unfair. What about in places like Europe? How have you seen consumers and retailers react to the news of not potentially being able to have Google on the phones? This will cause some inconvenience for the consumer without the uh, Google applications. We are very open to work with uh, Google. The working relation with Google is very good. Uh, we have done very good uh, cooperation in the past uh, uh, 30 years. And uh, continually, we hope we can work with Google. We are open. We're talking a lot here about trust. So let's flip this. Do you think that the Chinese government should also be trusting American tech companies like, say, a Google? I think the trust, the globalization is based on trust. So we can see over the past 30 years, so the digital sector, uh, which Huawei worked in, is benefited from the globalization. So I think the globalization open and the cooperation is a major trend for our industry. And Julia, for Huawei, getting those Google apps on their phones will be important for them because their overseas smartphone sales are going down 6%. Although overall, the company's business has been rather resilient and has rose and has risen 24%. Julia. Yeah, it's such a great point. And I want to pick up on that point about trust here as well, because there's another angle here, and that's the FCC, the regulators mm. here. What's the risk that they weighed in and say, look, we're not going to allow federal funds to be used to buy equipment from untrusted sources? Because this is another potential kicker too, surely. It is, and we will probably find out today because today the Federal Communications Commission in the United States will be voting on just that point, whether U.S. companies who have to use federal funds, so think of a lot of those sort of rural areas, places that need some help to get connectivity, whether they can purchase equipment from a company that might pose a national security risk like a Huawei or a ZT, because the issue, of course, is that they often sell their products cheaper than these places might be able to get from other companies, and that could pose a security risk. Of course, Huawei wants to be able to sell these products. They say that they've had long-standing relationships and they've posed no security risks. But there is a lot of pushback from Washington. A bipartisan group of senators have also this week written a letter to President Trump slamming a lot of these licenses that have been granted, saying that they need to be more careful with companies like Huawei and ZTE, Julia. Yeah, there's nothing uncomplicated about this situation. And of course, it ties to a broader trade deal or not. Haddis Gold, thank you so much for that. All right, next driver, a bumper deal in the brokerage market. There are reports that Charles Schwab is in talks to buy TD Ameritrade in a deal worth some $26 billion. Paula Monica is on this story. Paul, I feel like you and I perhaps predicted this a few weeks ago when we saw Charles Schwab cut the brokerage commission to zero for online trades. That created a tearing effect with some of the competitors. It pummeled their competitors far more as they followed suit. And now they potentially come in to buy one of them. Interesting. Yeah, I it's going to be very fascinating to see if this deal does happen. We're still waiting. The speculation of a deal, reports of it surfaced yesterday morning. Both Schwab and particularly TD Ameritrade, their shares surged on the news. But here we are 24 hours later, still no comment from either company about whether or not a deal is going to be coming. But you're right, Julia, a deal probably does make sense because now that Schwab and everyone else has gone to zero to contend with the likes of Robinhood and so many other popular trading apps that uh, millennials love. 
there is going to be this pressure on profit because they're giving up a pretty lucrative revenue stream by eliminating commissions. So consolidation is probably necessary. And I think Schwab and TD Ameritrade could be an interesting fit if they do actually merge. Interesting that you point out the share price reaction. Admittedly, to some degree, they've been pummeled, so you might see a positive reaction. But for both the acquirer and the acquired to rally is is unusual at this point. I just wonder whether the regulators are going to have a problem, even with the growing competition like Robin Hood, like lots of the robo-advisors, when you're talking about the number one and the number two in a sector, talking about combining. Is that going to be a problem for the regulators? It potentially could be an issue. I think that regulators will look long and hard at a proposed Schwab TD Ameritrade merger because it would eliminate a big competitor in the online brokerage area. But one of the counterpoints that obviously these companies probably would have is that, hey, we've cut commissions to zero. So it's not the classic case of you have a merger and you have a fewer entrant or fewer uh, competitors. So now all of a sudden prices go up. Everyone's going down. They're going to zero. That the, the days of paying anything for a commission are probably dead forever. So they're not going to now turn around and say, hey, because we've got economies of scale, let's start charging five bucks per commission. But it does beg the point of who is left competitively. You have Robinhood, we mentioned, E-Trade, who might be the odd man out, so to speak. But there's still fidelity. And then the big banks on Wall Street, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Via Marcus, they're all going after the retail customer, too. Such a great point. Potentially less choice for consumers, but if they're not hurt by it, in fact, fees have gone down to zero, it's a bolder argument to make to defend the uh, defend doing the deal. Such a great yeah, point. Yeah, I think it's Paul a similar Monica. argument to what the tech companies have, obviously. Amazon isn't hurting anyone by keeping prices low, but they're killing competition. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Thank you for that. Paula Monica, great to have you with us, making me smarter. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories we're following around the world. We start in Washington and the impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump. Democratic sources say articles of impeachment could be voted on by Christmas. Republicans are working with the White House on a strategy for a likely impeachment trial in the Senate. The hearings wrapped up on Thursday with two final witnesses and a warning that Russia is exploiting the partisan divide in U.S. politics. A defiant Benjamin Netanyahu rejecting calls to resign after Israel's attorney general unveiled corruption charges against him in three separate cases. Prime Minister Netanyahu is Israel's first sitting leader to face criminal indictment. He's called the charges an attempted coup. Hong Kong's High Court says a controversial face mask ban can be enforced for the next seven days while an appeal against it is considered. That comes ahead of this weekend's district council elections. The new police commissioner is calling for calm during the vote. Several high-profile campaigners have been attacked in recent violent protests. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but coming up, get ready for a great sag. Billionaire investor Ray Dalio gives his take on the global economy and shop till you drop. Southeast Asia's e-commerce giant Lazada makes its first move. We've got the CEO coming up. Stay with CNN. First move live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange as we head towards the final.
final trading session of the week. It does look like we're going to see a higher open for U.S. stock markets this session. Wrapping up what's been a pretty choppy week, I have to say, for trading for the U.S. majors. The Dow and the S&P 500 falling for three straight sessions in a row. But a rally today could get us closer to break even for the week, despite all the latest trade uncertainties. There's good and bad news. The good news is we're not heading towards a recession. The bad news is we could be calling it a great sag. That at least is what billionaire investor Ray Dalio sees happening. And he's been speaking to our Christy Lee Stout, who joins us now. Christy, great to have you with us. My question then would be, what does that mean for the stock markets ultimately? But talk us through what his logic is on this. Not a recession, but a sag. Yeah, and we'll see if that terminology is going to catch on, right? The sidelines of the new economy forum in Beijing got the opportunity to sit down and talk with Ray Dalio, the billionaire hedge fund financier, the founder of Bridgewater Associates, the biggest hedge fund in the world. He's also known as the Steve Jobs of investing. He correctly predicted the 2008 financial recession and profited handsomely from it. Ray Dalio is also a student of history. So I asked him if the trends, if the patterns are pointing to a recession happening now, this year or next year. Um, listen carefully to his response. We're in a situation in which a lot of liabilities are coming at us. Yeah. To some extent, they're debt. To some extent, they're pension liabilities and health care liabilities. More liabilities than we can fund. That would mean they will either be cut back and people who have those promises will not have those promises filled. I don't think that'll happen. I think that's politically too difficult. No. Or there will be more the monetization of those deficits. In other words, the printing of money and that process for dealing with it. So it's very much... And that's just say, the spinning of wheels, though. That's okay. just the machine. That's just how the machine works. Yeah. So I think we're more in a great sag um, the impetuses for growth uh, that began in 2008 and 9 are largely behind us. The cutting of interest rates, the cutting of uh, corporate taxes, yeah. and so on, those are behind us. And I think we're now in a period where we have a lot of these financial assets, which are financial liabilities that are too big, and they're going to then have to be dealt with with deficits and monetization and monetary policy. So it's not a recession, it's a great sag. That's and what I would We call, are in yeah. the midst of it right now. Yeah, early stages, yeah. Um, your fund made a lot of money in 2008 because you were able to position yourself in anticipation of the recession. In anticipation of the great sag, have you, how have you positioned yourself to be able to ride this out? Well, <clears throat> I, I, I don't discuss the particular positions for various reasons, uh, but I would say what we have is a very, very highly diversified portfolio. I think yeah. the most important thing for individuals yeah. is to know when cash is zero interest rates yeah. and close to zero or maybe below and bond yields are low and so on yeah. and you, and equities are priced because uh, they're fully priced because of that that diversification across countries and across asset classes is an important thing yeah so you're going to write this out of course and profit will we hope <laughs> we try 
Our billionaire financier Ray Dalio there. He does not want to use the word recession, but citing the Great Depression, he says we are in the beginnings of what he calls the Great Sag. He also believes that capitalism is broken. In fact, in a recent LinkedIn post that went viral, he said the world has gone mad and the system, meaning capitalism, is broken, citing overzealous lending, rising piles of government debt and the growing income equality that has been plaguing many corners of the world. In fact, he said he is most worried about that. He cited uh, growing income inequality as well as populism as being behind the unrest that we've seen in places like Chile and, yes, here in Hong Kong. He said there's a lot of liquidity out there. The world is awash in money, but it is not trickling down to lower income targets because they are just not creditworthy enough. He says the system is broken. There needs to be a paradigm shift. Back to you. Yeah, the question is, how do they go about addressing that? It's a very topical topic of a conversation right now, but how to tackle it? Chrissy Lusant, thank you for that. Stay with us. The market open is next. first move where U.S. stock markets are beginning this session with gains as anticipated. The down the S&P 500 rising actually for the first time since Monday. We had China's President Xi Jinping saying today he still wants to hammer out a trade agreement with the United States. So he did say he's not afraid to quote fight back. President Trump also saying today after some mixed commentary over the last few days that a deal could be close to. Yes, I can exhaust you with the back and forth, so I will move on. We're also wrapping up a big week for retail earnings. An ETF tracking the performance of the retail sector has actually fallen more than 2.5% this week. We've had some pretty mixed results. Macy's shares tumbled after they lowered their guidance, but Target shares rose to record highs. Target, in fact, raising its guidance this week. So it's really a mixed bag. Take a look at some of our global movers, which are focusing in on these retail names. Shares of Gap trading higher right now. Earnings and sales topped expectations. The company warned earlier this month that results could be weak. That's called expectation management. The CEO stepped down due to Gap's underperformance. Shares of Nordstrom also trading higher. Profits beat estimates, even though sales fell some 2%, though as expected. Nordstrom shares still down by around a quarter this year because of ongoing week sales. Tesla shares under a bit of pressure this morning too. The company unveiled its first electric truck on Thursday and as we were discussing earlier on in the show the reviews are mixed. It's set to go into production in late 2021. The low point of the presentation was the glass that was claimed to be unbreakable and it smashed. Oops, bit of work to do there. <laughs> well, let's talk through what's going on in the world. Joining us now, Christina Hooper, uh, she's Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco. Great to have you with us as always. I always say this when you're on the show, you are our voice of calm and wisdom where the trade deal is concerned and you've always kept this degree of skepticism, I think, about a trade deal here. When you're looking at the noises that are being made here, what's your sense? A skinnier, skinny deal? Is that what we're looking at, do you think? 
I think there's certainly the potential for a phase one deal, but I don't think it's going to happen as quickly as markets would like it to. Yeah. I think that what we're hearing is that it is very difficult for the U.S. and China to even agree on what seem to be simple uh, issues. For example, what we're hearing is that China does not want to be held to a specific amount in terms of agriculture purchases. The U.S. really wanted to have that in the phase one deal. And similarly, China would like to see more of a rollback of tariffs than what the U.S. is willing to give, or at least willing to give at this juncture. So it looks like it's going to take some time to even get a phase one deal if we get one. You know, the way that you look at this as well, and this is, I think, very important to understand the leverage and the negotiations here, is what we're seeing in terms of Chinese data. The stabilization to some degree in some of the survey data, the exports that were better than feared, particularly exports to other nations in Asia and to Europe, for example. Do we think we've seen the worst in the Chinese data too? Because this is also important for how China handles this negotiation too. I'm not sure we've seen the worst. But what I do believe is that China has a lot more dry powder in its arsenal so that it can throw more monetary stimulus at its economy and it can throw more fiscal stimulus at its economy. Uh, so I'm very confident that it will be able to meet its GDP growth bogey for 2020 um, because it is willing to spend to really avoid having to make any kind of major concessions to the U.S. You know, we spent a lot of time here in the United States talking about the strength of the U.S. consumer or the relative strength. Alibaba, Singles Day, we've just about seen all the numbers now, $38 billion equivalent worth of spending. What does that tell you about the strength and the resilience of the Chinese consumer too? It's clear that the Chinese economy might be on some under, uh, under some pressure, but it is not under dramatic pressure. Uh, the kind of spending we're seeing coming from consumers suggests that it is a fairly solid economic environment in China. So you would, you would see that as the, the sort of key takeaway from Alibaba's numbers here on Singles Day too. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I think that that really speaks to the resilience of the Chinese economy and the emerging power of the consumer as an important driver of the economy. Yeah, micro and macro here, key. Okay, the market is, remains very sensitive. I mean, we've seen the president saying perhaps they won't do a deal, that they're losing patience with China. Then in the last few hours, he said, look, perhaps a deal is close. If we do see a market pullback as a result of broader concerns that we aren't going to get a, a phase one deal as, as quickly as hoped, is that a buying opportunity? And if so, where? Absolutely. I do think it's a buying opportunity because we have to keep in mind there's a critical factor supporting the stock market, and that is Fed accommodation. Jay Powell came out a few weeks ago in the press conference following the last FOMC meeting and made it clear that there is a very high bar for the Fed to raise rates in 2020. And so that suggests a very accommodative environment, one that's supportive for stocks. So if we do see any kind of short-term drop as a result of disappointing trade news, uh, then I think that represents a good buying opportunity for investors that have a long enough time horizon. And what kind of sectors should they be focusing on, and perhaps more importantly, sectors avoiding? Well, I think it makes sense to take something of a barbell approach. For the full year,
year of 2020, we're likely to see secular growth outperforming. And that drives us to areas like technology. I still find technology very attractive, even though we continue to see strong performance there. Um, however, this is an environment where we expect to see continued financial repression. Rates are going to be low. So it's going to be critical to derive yield from all different kinds of asset classes, including stocks. And so higher yielding, uh, higher dividend yielding stocks include utilities, um, telecom, and REITs. Um, REITs are an important, uh, almost an alternative asset class and, uh, and represent the potential for solid returns. So again, something of a barbell approach where we get some growth and, and uh, some more value, higher yielding uh, parts of the market. Yeah, makes sense to me. Christina Hooper from Invesco, thank you so much for joining us on First Move. And happy Friday. You too, Julia. Good to see All you. All right. Good to see you too. All right, we're going to take a break here. But uh, speaking of Singles Day and Alibaba, we actually caught up with Alibaba's Southeast Asia chief when I was in Singapore last week, the CEO of Lazada, how the company is dominating the e-commerce market and focusing on growth. That's after this. Stay with us. move. Now, if you're watching us from Southeast Asia, you'll know Lazada is a significant force in e-commerce. The marketplace, which is owned by Alibaba, enjoys a fast-growing middle-class base to consumers. Lazada says it's seen over a 100% growth in orders over four consecutive quarters, over 50 million active consumers every year across Southeast Asia, and has on sale over 200 million product listings. And that's just a start. Listen in. I think uh, we had uh, an amazing 11-11 uh, Singles Day. Yeah. Uh, we uh, recorded uh, um, uh, 10 million actually shoppers that came, new shoppers that came to the, the platform. We had a double number of sellers who sold uh, uh, products on uh, Lazada. Uh, but also most importantly, a lot of our strategy materialized. You know, we were focusing a lot on uh, innovation for shopping, for shop attainment. And uh, we had a, a lot of this came together. We brought in games to the market, a super show, uh, live streaming. And uh, just on the lead up to the day, uh, 1.1 million uh, uh, shoppers connected to the app to watch our Guess It King uh, show. Yeah, I watched this, which is quite fascinating. But you had you had bands brattle, battling over Instagram as well, which yes. was generating a lot of, I think, a lot of hype and a lot of excitement ahead of time. It was also vouchers in store, so you were doing Correct. a lot of a sort of cross product selling, but also PR as well. Exactly, I think it's uh, it's it's the nature of uh, shopping in the region. Yeah. Um, a lot of our consumers, they don't come to Lazada just to click buy and that's it. No, they come because they want to, for the experience, before shopping, during shopping, or even after shopping, connecting with sellers, connecting with other shopping shoppers, connecting with the community. So that's what we are trying to do online, basically. You don't break out numbers. And as you've said, and you've said it many times, you know, it's early days, 3% e-commerce penetration in this region in Southeast Asia. So there's plenty of growth opportunity here. But how important is Singles Day relative to the rest of the year in terms of purchases and, and people interacting with the site? So, so I think we, w why do we do these uh, campaigns? Yeah. It's, it's less about the sales number, uh, more about the engagement we can have. The engagement with our shoppers, the engagement with our sellers. This is the day where we showcase to our sellers how a shopping can be online in the future. This is the day where, you know, a small seller suddenly can record 20, 30x sales and he starts to dream about the future. He starts to dream about 
when the uh, e-commerce penetration will not be like 3-5%, but like 30% like in China. And then we imagine together what the future of online shopping will be. So this is not just about selling to consumers at a time when we're worried about slowing growth around the world. This is also about allowing local businesses to sell within their country, but also cross borders. Yes, I mean, you're you're right to point that out. Um, When we look at numbers, numbers are are something, but we have to also look at the impact on our economy. And uh, um, e-commerce enables our sellers to access much broader market. You're a seller from Bandung, in traditional commerce, you only sell to customers around the city. And then you have to go through distributors and lose that connection. Via e-commerce, you can access um, shoppers from all the country, from all Indonesia. On day one on Lazada, in your shop online, you get hundreds of customers. But then it's also not only about the country, it's about cross-border. Uh, for example, um, uh, during uh, Timor 11 uh, we introduced the Ellipse to the Chinese uh, consumers and uh, the, the, the brand, it was an um, air care brand, uh, registered uh, 40x the daily sales. Wow, 40 times the daily sales as a result of being on the platform yes. and using the platform to access consumers. Who was buying? So I think uh, uh, China is the largest retail domestic market in the world. So I think uh, uh, through, yeah, so through Tmall, you have access to uh, more than 700 million consumers. So uh, quite a lot of people uh, would be interested uh, in uh, cross-border products. Wow. I mean, that must be one happy seller. Yes. You've not caught up with him yet, but when no, you do, you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a handshake there or yes. two. That's an interesting point, though, and we've not talked about that. If we look more broadly, and it's not just about 11.11, but more broadly, is it about customers in this region, in Southeast Asia, or is the, the lion's share of the people that are buying from sellers in this region coming from China? No, so I think uh, uh, what we see is uh, mostly the sellers are from, you know, one country and they, they, uh, they sell to consumer in one country. Yeah. That's, you know, the, pro- the, the bulk of what we do. Um, but uh, I see, we also see demand for, from product from all around the world, from this region. And we also have a strong demand of sellers that want to access new markets. So I think um, uh, that's the, the power of being part of the Alibaba economy. Uh, we are not only Lazada, we are part of the, the, the dream of Jack Ma is create an economy of 2 billion consumers uh, that can buy from sh- uh, sellers around the world and create a platform so that sellers around the world can access 2 billion consumers. And uh, we are the flagship platform of Alibaba in Southeast Asia and we're part of that dream. E-commerce penetration in this region is incredibly small. So we talked about some of the headwinds to growth on this in the region. Things like inefficient logistics industry, a fragmented retail landscape, 64 million small and medium-sized enterprises, never mind 240 different languages. What about low credit card take-up too? Lazada tells me 91% of people in the region don't own a credit card, with most first-time buyers still relying on cash payments and and cash on delivery. Listen in. I think uh, we have some room to go here. Uh, um, 70% of the population in Southeast Asia is underbanked. Yeah. So um, we actually have turned that into uh, an advantage for us because uh, on the back of our logistics network, we offer the widest cash on delivery network to our consumers. 83% of the uh, consumer for the first purchase use on cash on delivery. Yes. Once we have... Uh, got them in, uh, we t- try to turn them into an online payment users. We work this with uh, Alipay uh, and Financial. Uh, we have launched together 
wallets in five or six uh, markets and uh, we are actively growing uh, the uh, share of our wallets. For example, in Malaysia, I can also give an example, more than uh, one shopper out of three during uh, uh, 11, sing 11 events, Singles Day, bought using our own uh, wallet. Really? Yes. Wow. And how do you see that ratio increasing over the next two, five years, let's say? I think, um, why do we do this? We do this to make the payment experience seamless. So it's not about, you know, um, uh, our wallet per se. It's about the payment experience on, uh, on Lazada. So as long as, you know, the ecosystem works together, then I'm very happy. Uh, <laughs> so th that's what's more important. I mean, but you're challenging the banks in that regard for the payment system. I mean, as you said, it's about the experience. It's not about that. But, you know, my eyes light up when you're saying one out of every three is using some form of wallet provided by you guys. I mean, that's, that's incredibly powerful for other purchases that they make outside of, of your system. Obviously, if you talk about wallet, you can imagine the future with uh, um, oh boy. Uh, online credit and all of this. So that's uh, one of the reasons why we are focusing on this. It's gonna, we believe it's going to play a very important role. But at the same time, we indeed want the overall ecosystem to uh, improve. And uh, we want you know banks to allow much faster transfer uh, from um, uh, consumer to online shoppers, for example. Mm. But I mean, we're already seeing, and if we look at China as an example here with the likes of Alipay and, and WeChat Pay, I mean, their system of e-payments is incredibly advanced at this stage. Do you see, again, that kind of adoption spreading across Southeast uh, Asia? Because, again, it's, it's, it is more complicated. Yes, it's, I think uh, Southeast Asia is not like, it's not one region. No. It's um, six different markets. So, and languages. And languages. <laughs> so I think the... Um, the, I, I foresee quite different evolution in each market with regards to payments, but same as logistics or even uh, consumer habits. So what we work on is how do we actually localize our platform and offering to each of these markets. As you've probably understood now, Pierre is French. I also talked to him about what it's like to be a Western executive in charge of a Southeast Asian company with a Chinese owner. It's an interesting one. I think for me, it's uh, it personally, it's very uh, natural um, to tell a little bit more about myself. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually uh, married to a, a Singaporean uh, uh -huh. lady with whom I, <laughs> whom I met more than 20 years ago uh, uh, while studying. Um, and uh, we moved into this region uh, more than 10 years ago. Uh, we have, uh, uh, my kids are uh, both Singaporean and, and French for that matter. So we live in that environment. And uh, so for me, it feels very, very natural. And also, um, Southeast Asia is one of the most diverse and open region in the world. And I think many parts of the world should learn on how these communities live together in, uh, in Southeast Asia. Of Lazada there. All right, up next with Disney's Frozen poised to set the box office on fire this weekend. We take a look at the fairy tale year for the House of Mouse. It's coming up. Stay with us. To first move with a look at today's boardroom brief. Victoria's Secret will not hold its iconic fashion show this year. It's seen failing ratings and growing criticism lately, with some people calling it sexist and anti-feminist. Parent company Al Brands says the marketing of Victoria's Secret needs to evolve. 
British band Coldplay says it will not tour for the next year or two to find a way to do it without harming the environment. Ahead of the launch of a new album, Everyday Life, frontman Chris Martin says the dream is to have a solar-powered concert free of single-use plastic, and they have to swim there as well. Now, from Coldplay to Frozen, Disney releases the highly anticipated sequel to its 2013 hit today. The company expects Frozen 2 to rake in $100 million this weekend, the highest ever for Disney's animation studio. Now, the company's already had a blockbuster year. Its stock price is up more than 30% year-to-date, very far from Frozen, it seems. Frank Pelota has more on this. Frank, it was what? The first one was uh, grossed more than $1.2 billion worldwide at the box office. You have seen Frozen 2. What do you make of it? Can I thought it was that a number. I- uh, I, I think it has a good shot. I mean, it's a solid sequel. The biggest question is going to be, remember, you said it made $1.2 billion. It's bigger than that. It, sparked, it spawned merchandising. It spawned theme park rides, a Broadway show, and, of course, let it go in a hit soundtrack. But that was six years ago. Those seven-year-old little girls in their uh, pr- uh, Princess Anna and uh, Queen Elsa outfits are now a little bit older. They might have outgrown not just their outfits but the brand itself. But Disney is very uh, Disney's very hopeful on this this weekend. It looks to be another big hit. It has the potential to be the company's sixth billion dollar hit this year you know i got into a lift this past week and there was a little girl in there and she smiled at me she was wearing a blue dress and i said oh you're very pretty and she said my name's elsa and it kind of clocked i was like so i do i do think it's valid for a whole generation six years on for for a new set here um but your point is it's not quite as good as number one the sequels are never as good as the first ones I didn't say that. I said it's solid. I said it's very, very good. It's just it's very hard to compare it to the original. The original was this kind of uh, lightning in a bottle type of situation. I don't even think Disney at that point ever expected Frozen to take off the way it is. And this is kind of a return to Arendelle, return to these characters. And for people who kind of have grown with Frozen over these last six years, it's a return to that beloved story. It's just about trying to figure out if it can kind of fit in all these years later. I think it will. I think it's going to be a big hit for Disney. And it's surprising because it's kind of like one of its dark horses. We've been talking a lot about Marvel. We've been talking a lot about Pixar. We have Star Wars coming out for Disney next month. Frozen has kind of flown under the radar, especially considering that over that last six years, Disney has focused more on streaming than anything else. I can't believe it's been six years. I still sing Let It Go. I still, I still know all the words. We'll see. Frank Pelosi, I'm going to go and see it this weekend anyway. We shall see. We'll come back to this. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. All right, so that just about wraps up the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. You can listen to our podcast too, cnn.com slash podcast if you missed the show. But for now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Have a great Friday. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.